everyone. My name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 15th of January. This Sunday's theme is the account at the beginning of the Gospel according to John, in which John the Baptist points out Jesus as the Lamb of God. Two of John's disciples choose to follow Jesus and Jesus says to them, come and see. The titles of all of our music today begin with that same word, come. And we have already heard a Zimbabwean song, Come All You People. Some notices. Copy for the February edition of the Church Magazine should be with the editor Glynis by Thursday the 19th of January. That same evening the deacons will be meeting. Next Sunday afternoon at 4pm there will be a service to mark the week of prayer for Christian unity at Homewood Road United Reformed Church, where the preacher will be the very Reverend Joe Kelly Moore. Dean of St Albans. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud or in those who worship idols. O Lord, my God, you have performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. 
you take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand you don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, Look, I have come, as it is written about me in the Scriptures. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out, as you, O Lord, well know. I have not kept the good news of your justice hidden in my heart. I have talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I have told everyone in the great assembly of your unfailing love and faithfulness. Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me. Let your unfailing love and faithfulness always protect me. Welcoming Lord, thank you that you invite us to come and see. You extend a warm welcome to us. Thank you that you invite us to stay and eat with you. Thank you that we can draw closer to you. We worship you, O faithful one, knowing that you have chosen us. We are honoured in your sight 
and you have become our strength. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. O God, our Father, you invited us to come and see, and yet often we have turned the other way. You offered us a warm welcome, and yet often we did not extend that welcome to others. You invited us to tell others about you, and sometimes we turn away and choose not to. You have invited us to come and eat, and yet we have chosen to eat elsewhere. You came as a sacrificial lamb, and we allowed you to be crucified. Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, we have been washed clean by your blood, by your sacrifice upon the cross. We have been made whole in you, and you invite us to walk with you fresh each day. Thank you for wiping our slate clean. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? he asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. There was a program on the radio a while back about the experience of British Asians who came to this country in the 1950s with just three pounds in their pocket. This was all the money they were allowed to take out of their country under Indian law. The particular episode of the program that I listened to was about identity. Despite having lived in this country for the majority of their lives, the colour of their skin and sometimes their accent and cultural practices mark them out as being different from someone who is white British. People might ask them, where do you come from? Their answer might be London, Birmingham or Bristol. But they then get asked another question. No, but where do you really come from? 
And don't forget, this was a few years before the controversy last year about the lady-in-waiting who asked that same question at Buckingham Palace. Where do you come from is not just a question asked by white British people of black and minority ethnic people, of course. Apparently, people who come from South Asia will often ask other people from that part of the world where they come from, as the Indian subcontinent is as diverse as Africa. I guess that this would be the same amongst people from the Caribbean islands. A couple of years ago, I had this question, where does he really come from, asked about me. I met one of my son's singing colleagues after a show and chatted with her for a few minutes. And later she asked my son that same question, where does your father come from? Rory told her, London. And then she asked that other question, no, but where does he really come from? For several weeks I was intrigued by this and wondered where she thought I came from. Maybe because my son Rory's name is Scottish, she thought I'd come from the Highlands. The best way to solve this mystery was to ask Rory to ask Lauren where she thought I came from. Now I realised that this could be a little embarrassing for him, but as it wasn't me doing the asking, I wasn't too bothered. So what do you think she said? Well, it turns out that Lauren thought that I might be from Mongolia or Siberia. Now you probably think that this is rather far-fetched. How could a man born in Teddington, in south-west London, be a distant relative of Genghis Khan, for instance? Well, there is a faint possibility that this is true. Apparently, because Genghis Khan fathered so many children, it's said that 8% of the world's population can count him as an ancestor. Just to add a further bit of support to this possibility, there is a whiff of mystery, or dare I say scandal, in my family tree. My father never knew his father, my grandfather. His mother was a single parent, and there was always an air of mystery around the identity of my father's father. I've always quite liked the idea that my grandfather was something exotic, and so maybe he was an adventurer from Mongolia, who'd come west along the Silk Road and had a brief but obviously passionate relationship with my grandmother. Sadly, I think that this is unlikely. When I was in my teens, I remember my father telling me that there was a story that his father had been a police sergeant from Twickenham, not a Mongol warlord. My eyelids are probably just a bit droopy and not terribly exotic. I'm in good company having been asked where I'm from, as the Bible records that people talked about where Jesus was from. When he spoke wise words or performed miracles, people scratched their heads and wondered why the bloke from down the street, the son of Joseph the carpenter, was coming out with the things he said and did. Before he'd even started preaching and teaching, one of the disciples of John the Baptist queried how Jesus could be God's Messiah when he came from Nazareth. Can anything good come from that place? said Nathaniel. Jesus was known throughout his adult life as Jesus of Nazareth, but where did he really come from? The Christmas stories tell us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the town from which God's Messiah would come. The other two Gospel writers don't mention Bethlehem, and the rest of the Bible doesn't mention Bethlehem either. So where did he really come from? He really came from God. This is how the Gospel writer John describes the origins of Jesus as translated in the message. The word was first, the word present to God. God present to the word. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. 
In a way that's hard to understand and even harder to explain, God's Son, who was with him before anything was, was born into our world. He moved into our neighbourhood. He pitched his tent among us. This was Jesus. Jesus, Joseph and Mary's son. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Bethlehem. But also Jesus, son of God. Where was he really from? He was from God to show us that God loves this world and loves us. Actually, to describe John chapter 1 as an account of the coming of Jesus is to fail to do it justice. There is nothing here about the birth of Jesus or about the coming of wise men from the East, nor, like Mark, does John just dive straight into the story of John the Baptist. No, in his gospel story, John takes us back to before the world began. He echoes the words at the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning. While Genesis states that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, John goes beyond that point and to before anything was, to when the word was with God. Here John is describing this word of God come as a person, a person who was born a human, a child of Adam, who was born as one of us and who made his home with us, a man who lived and died the life that we live and die. This introduction is extraordinary in its ability to lift our eyes to the heavens so that we're encouraged to see that what happened in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, in the Galilean towns and in Jerusalem was more than a story of a holy man who was treated badly by those who should have known better. This is a story which has its origins in heaven and before time began. And yet the brilliance of John's account is that it mixes the poetry of these first verses and his description of God's Son's eternal provenance with some of the more humble and prosaic parts of the New Testament. Even in the midst of John, the Gospel writer's heavenly prologue to the earthly story of Jesus, there is a strangely ordinary sentence. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. Luke tells us that John's story is entwined with that of Jesus. The two men were in some way kin, their mothers having a cousin relationship. We know next to nothing about the childhood of Jesus and less than that about John's life from his being named to his preaching in the wilderness alongside the River Jordan. John's message was that there was someone coming. This may sound odd to us, but to the people in first century Palestine, this was big news. The Jews had been waiting for God to send his Messiah, an anointed ruler who would be like King David, only better. So if someone proclaimed that he is coming, people would have known what this meant. But what confused those who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah was who John was. The Gospel of John tells us that John the Baptist confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. This begins to sound like one of those party games where you have to guess the name that someone has in their minds, but they can only answer yes or no. These people got impatient, and finally they said, Well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John the Baptist replied using words that were first spoken by Isaiah many centuries earlier. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. You see, John hadn't come to be the one. He had come to point the way towards the one and to prepare the people for the coming of the one who would be God's Messiah. John didn't get his nickname, the Baptist, for nothing. Nor did he get it because he liked to sing from the Baptist hymn book. 
No, he was called the Baptist because he baptised people. He preached the need for repentance as a means of preparation for the Messiah's coming, and he immersed those who followed him as an act of cleansing, making themselves ready for the one who would come. How it came to pass that John the Baptist acknowledged Jesus as the one is uncertain. There is some suggestion that Jesus was one of those who initially followed John, which was what led to Jesus asking John to baptise him. It's difficult to be sure of the nature of their relationship as kin or as fellow members of a religious community. But John knew that Jesus was the one. John pointed to Jesus and told his followers, Look, this is he, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John then told these others what he had seen, how the Spirit of God descended on Jesus and remained with him, a detail that the other writers omit. It was God who told John that what he'd seen was the sign for which he'd been waiting. What follows in the rest of our reading is an account of how some of John's disciples and their friends and family turned to follow Jesus. This was not an act of disloyalty on their part. On the contrary, it was John who urged them to follow Jesus in order that John's own purpose be fulfilled. John the Baptist is generally portrayed as a loudmouth who wore skins, ate locusts, and probably smelt like he needed a bath. This is based largely on the account that Matthew has written. The other Gospel writers also suggest that John had doubts about his original assessment of who John was. While such doubts are not unnatural, the Gospel of John gives us another side to John the Baptist. Here is a man who was sufficiently self-aware and humble to point away from himself and towards Jesus, and to trust in the one who had called him to proclaim the message to have got it right. John's testimonials are pretty ordinary and lack any sense of a persuasive argument in favour of following Jesus. John appears to say little and he repeats himself, Look, the Lamb of God. Yet on the basis of his witness, two of his followers become Jesus' first disciples. Having seen, John testifies so that others might see. Later, when inquirers ask Jesus what he's up to, Jesus says simply, come and see. A minister was working as a volunteer in a homeless shelter when one of the organisers warned him, keep your God talk to yourself, we're here to help people in need. The minister reassured his boss for the day that neither he nor the homeless had anything to fear because most Christians would rather hand out a bowl of soup than risk telling someone what they believe. It's safer to give out food than it is to testify to that person that we wouldn't be serving him or her if Jesus had not put us here. After all, as we learn when Herod silences John, testifies to the truth, threaten the world just by talking the truth. But faith must be received from someone else. No one is born into this faith. Nobody stumbles upon it walking in the woods or by gazing at one's own navel. Christians are recipients, never initiators. Here is truth that can be had only with receptive, empty, open hands. Someone had to love us enough to show and to tell the story. We know what we know only through the witness of another, only through testimony. There's a question we should ask one another. Have you seen or heard anything from God worth testifying to someone else? 
There was an elderly gentleman in our church in South End who'd been a London City missioner, and he had a testimony to tell. As young people, I'm ashamed to say that we used to mock him behind his back and imitate some of the familiar words he used to say. I was a drunkard and my father was a drunkard. That was Ted's testimony, and he loved to tell how God had changed him, how his life had been turned upside down in a good way because someone had pointed him towards Jesus. People need help in order to see. Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Our passage today indicates the same could be said about seeing Jesus. Critics of Christianity will often accuse it of relying on medieval superstition. I don't think that many of us would recognise this description of our faith as either medieval or superstitious, and yet we cannot escape the fact that Christianity is not rational. That does not mean to say that it is irrational, but simply that some of what we say and do has no explanation that we can prove in a scientific fashion. Our job is to testify to what we have seen and to the truth that God has revealed to us. Obviously, Christians are as prone to holding on to a fixed worldview as people who don't follow Jesus. Let's not forget the church once persecuted people who said the earth revolved around the sun. People do need prompting. How will they see unless they have been shown? We don't know the precise circumstances surrounding the events involving John the Baptist, Jesus and John's disciples that are described in our passage. We don't know whether it might have been evident to others that Jesus was the one. But what we do know is that it required John the Baptist to point it out. Jesus was right under their nose, but it needed John the Baptist to point and say, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It will be 32 years this summer since I left work in the building industry to train to be a minister. I tried, as we used to say, to bring Jesus into the office. In my naivety, I thought that he wouldn't be there unless I initiated an introduction. I tried to talk about what we were doing in church and offer a Christian viewpoint on the events in the news. One conversation that stayed with me is the occasion that one of my colleagues said that when I say that we believe this or that, it carries far less weight than when I say I believe something. People want to know what difference our faith makes to our life, because if it doesn't make a difference to us, why should they bother with it? Jesus is the word of God, but the word requires somebody like John the Baptist, who has the guts to stand up and speak the truth. The word requires somebody like me or other ministers to preach the Gospels. But more importantly, it also requires people like us, people like you, who have the guts to stand up and speak the truth and point others towards Jesus. It needs all of us. And all we have is words. But if these words testify that we know Jesus, then they are indeed powerful words. Come and see, come and see the King of love See the purple robe and crown of thorns he wears Soldiers mock, rulers sneer, 
As he lifts the cruel cross Lone and friendless now He climbs towards the hill We worship at your feet Where author mercy be And the guilty world is washed By love's pure stream Take it in Deep wounds of love Cry out Father forgive I Much deeper than the wounds of thorn and nail. All our pride, all our greed, all our fallenness and shame, and the Lord has laid the punishment on him. We worship at your Where wrath and mercy be And the guilty world is washed By love's pure stream For us he was made sin Oh help me take it in Deep wounds of love cry out Father forgive
Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we bring our prayers for others to you now, we are aware of our inadequacies to help more and do more. We come to you nonetheless trusting in your power and your love. We see the needs around us and for them we pray. For all those who are struggling with decisions as to whether to strike or work, seek more pay, better conditions or go with the flow that we all face at present. For union leaders, those on the front line, politicians and all involved in deciding what is right and affordable and just and fair. For countries in deep poverty where there is no extra support, no pay, let alone pay rises, no good conditions, let alone better conditions. Lord our God, hear our prayer. For an end to the political unrest around the world where stable lives are being unsteadied and futures being made more uncertain. In countries where one party seems no better than another, where political unrest seems to be escalating more and more. We pray for Iran, for Brazil, for Ukraine. Lord our God, hear our prayer. For those in our own government seeking to resolve the Northern Ireland Protocol, and all the red tape involved, all the differing views, hopes and aspirations. Help us to come to see the needs, the realities and the way forward. Lord our God, hear our prayer. For those areas of the world where storms and floods and fires are still wreaking havoc, may those who are seeking resolutions for the climate come together, listen to each other, see the need and move towards sustainable action. Lord our God, Hear our prayer. For the frightened and the fearful and the voiceless in societies who have no good news to tell, no stories to encourage, no history worthy of repeat to other generations. For the rootless and the lost who see no path ahead and no point to the future, Lord our God, hear our prayer. For the ill and the suffering whose pain overwhelms them, physical or mental, bring them your comfort your love, your word of truth, your light in dark days. Lord our God, hear our prayer. And for those whom we know personally who need our prayers and your love, may we tell them of your love, your promises, and about your life eternal. Lord our God, hear our prayer. All these prayers we offer in the name of Jesus. Amen.
last song is a rather wistful piece called Come Wander With Me, but first a final prayer. Lord, you invited us to come and see, and you opened our eyes to your wonders. We have been transformed by our encounter. Now give us the courage to go and tell, to share who you are with others we meet, so they too may be transformed by you. Amen. Come wander with me, love Come wander with me Away from this sad 
with you. He came from the sunset. He came from the sea. He came from my sorrow and can love. 